Let's pray. Father, uh, please, we ask, send the, the winds of revival. First, send them to my own heart daily and to the hearts of each person in this room. And make them blow in this little valley in western Colorado, in the Rocky Mountain region, through our country, through our world. But may it be true revival, not born from manipulation or the, the peddling of your word, but a true move of the Spirit. Yes, and by the open proclamation of the word of Christ, may it be accepted not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. May the gospel be proclaimed and heard not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction so that we would hear and know the truth and that the spirit of the living God may be the truth effective and active in our daily lives. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Um, as we go to this text this morning, we'll be looking at verses 4 and 5. Uh, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 5. Um, and now there are different kinds of sermons, and most sermons have numerous components. Some are more explanation-heavy, some are more admonition-heavy or um, encouragement-heavy, and, and maybe some truths would be one thing for one person in a season and another for another. Uh, this message this morning, it will be more of an explanation sermon. Um, This is a sermon about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I thought it good with our backgrounds, varied backgrounds here, and also considering the trajectory of Acts to lay some groundwork on this topic um, as we go forward, which is what our verses are about today, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, So that's where we're headed this morning, and uh, so if you would, let's stand and we'll read uh, our text for this morning. Uh, Acts 1, verses 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Amen. This is God's Word. Please be seated. I have a friend. I don't see him much. I talk to him on the phone. We're still good friends. Uh, we have disagreed over the years over a number of theological issues and remain good friends despite it. Uh, he, he was working in Texas, and he invited me down one time. He was staying with his mentor, and uh, he invited me to come spend some time there. So he flew me down, and uh, as conversations with his mentor and himself developed, uh, it was kind of immediately obvious we disagreed about the activity and manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. After we'd gone out to eat and we'd had 
some back and forth. He sat me down, gave me an iPad, and looked up the word Holy Spirit in the Bible. I don't know how many texts there are. He wanted me to read all of them, and I dutifully read them and was kind of thinking, well, I, I don't have to be convinced that there's a Holy Spirit. Just because we disagree about how He works doesn't mean I don't believe He exists. And I think from the very beginning of my time there, he thought that he had me pegged as someone who had gone to seminary or cemetery, in his mind, to die. And I heard and saw a number of strange things while I was down there. Uh, But by the end of my stay, as I was about to leave, he said, You know, Zach, you clearly know a lot about the Bible and theology, but I don't think you know... The Holy Spirit. Now, there can be some validity to a statement like that. As I've pointed out myself, a theological acumen does not equal spiritual maturity. Uh, You can have all the knowledge in the world about the most complex theological topics and still have that heart of stone, be unregenerate. And so our our, our knowledge must come alive to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our faith must become experiential, enacting obedience and and new affections to Christ. That is true. But I don't think that's what he was getting at. Um, There's this idea, an idea that inhabits a number of theological um, camps, uh, including uh, Pentecostalism, Wesleyanism, uh, something called Keswick theology, even Roman Catholicism it takes different forms in these, and we won't have time to look at them in detail. But the, the basic premise is uh, what, what's been called second blessing theology. That is to say, we have our conversion experience, our first blessing, and then later a second blessing, a, re- a renewal, if you will, a, a a time when our faith becomes awakened, perhaps accompanied with some spiritual or mystical experience. And that kind of experience, that sort of second awakening experience, has been identified in these theologies with this topic of today, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the second blessing. So the purpose of this sermon is to kind of look at our text and consider what it has to say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but also to branch out into Acts and and the Scripture at large and see what the Bible has to say about these ideas. Um, And it's important to get a grip on this for the sake of our study in Acts, understanding the Bible, but also for interpreting our own experience. Because I know probably all of us, myself included, have had experiences of awakening, or reawakening. So, how do we name those things? How do we, uh, what, what do we do with those experiences? How, what do we make of those parts of our history? And are they the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And also just a reminder that this is just a start on these conversations. This topic is, is deep and wide. It may be feel like there's a lot of detail in this message. It may feel like a fire hose, but remember this fire hydrant is is connected to like Lake Powell. I mean, there's a lot more. Our, our, we won't make much of a dent, but we'll get us we'll lay some groundwork for the future. Um, so let's look at our verse. We begin with a command. The ESV uses even the word order. Jesus ordered them. Verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Um, First of all, what is significant about Jerusalem? Well, we all know that the Great Commission, it's supposed to begin in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. This is the, the... Epicenter, the, pl- the place from which the gospel will propagate. So go to Jerusalem, the, the, the beginning of the church. This is part of God's eschatological promises for Jerusalem, prophesied in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 2, verse 3, Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is how it was meant to be. So this is why he sent them to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. And we see already here the context of the command to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is in advance of the proclamation of the gospel. The Spirit baptism at Pentecost will be um, a redemptive historical event in the ongoing heavenly ministry of Jesus. A redemptive historical event. It will happen at a particular time in a particular place. Just like the the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus were particular events in redemptive history. This is important because often we're called upon to have our own Pentecost experience. But Pentecost was, was a redemptive historical event. As Sinclair Ferguson says, Pentecost is not repeated any more than the death or resurrection of Christ is a repeatable event. Rather, we enter into it in such a way that the Spirit is poured out into our hearts through faith in Christ. So his point is, we should not expect a personal Pentecost. Instead, as he said elsewhere in the same chapter as Ferguson did, he, he said that the effects of, at, of Pentecost at the epicenter radiate out into the world and even to, into our own day. So in the same way that we experience uh, the effects of the death of Christ, we experience the effects of the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The baptism, uh, this, this spirit baptism would be a one-time event in which also the, the recipients would be passive. They would be receiving. God, the triune God, would be the active party. The disciples would receive the Holy Spirit who would be sent by Jesus as a fulfillment of the promise of the Father. So this is a Trinitarian act upon the disciples. John fourteen sixteen, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So they had heard this promise of the Father from the lips of Jesus. And it was really a long-standing promise, a promise given in the Old Testament that the arrival of the Spirit of God in a new way was this eschatological event. It was the beginning of the end, the beginning of these last days, a new period in redemptive history. Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my Spirit on all flesh. And Isaiah 40, verse 44, verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And again, Isaiah Isaiah 32, 15. Until the spirit is poured out on us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field 
and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. So again, this is a, a promise, promise given in the Old Testament that the Spirit would come in a, a new way, a different way on all flesh. And this is the beginning of the end, the beginning of the last days. So we see again, this was going to be an event, a singular historical event, the arrival of the latter days. And it would begin a new era in redemptive history. Now we would want to ask, or I, I, I want to ask, isn't it true that the Spirit has always been active? Like in the Old Testament. Didn't He regenerate Old Testament saints? Didn't He give them gifts and play a role even in creation? And yes, He did, but in this new age, He's taking on new responsibilities. J.I. Packer had a really good illustration here on this point. He, he says, There is a seminary whose president was chosen from the faculty and took office on the understanding that he would continue to teach the courses he was teaching already. Thus, as president, he gained new responsibilities without losing any. So, too, the Holy Spirit's ministry was enlarged at Pentecost without being in any way diminished from what it was before. Prior to Pentecost, the Spirit sustained creation and natural life, renewed hearts, gave spiritual understanding, and bestowed gifts for service, both in leadership and in other ways, and all this he still does. The difference since Pentecost is that all this present ministry to Christian believers relates not only to Christ, who was to come, who was to come as was the case when he ministered to Old Testament saints, nor does it relate any more to Christ present on earth as it did when Simeon and Anna recognized him and during his three years of public ministry. I think this is the important bit. It, it relates now to Christ who has come and has died and risen and now reigns in glory. The, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit relates to us in a different way because Christ is in a different position. He is in glory. This is the ministry of Christ through the Holy Spirit. So this role of the Holy Spirit as ever-present helper sent by the exalted Christ is seen here in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it different than the accounts in the Gospel? Because in, in the Gospels, who's the baptizer in the Holy Spirit? It says here, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but who is the baptizer in John's prophecy? Jesus is. Jesus is risen and ascended, and yet he's baptizing these people in the Holy Spirit. It's his ministry. So Pentecost is the fulfillment of that promise, um, which brings us back to the point I, I brought up last week. The Gospel of Luke dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The God, Acts deals with all he is continuing to do and teach. And we know from John particularly that the Spirit couldn't come in this way until he, Jesus was gone. Uh, John seven thirty eight through 39 Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive... For, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He, he had to be glorified for the Spirit to come in this particular way. 
So much like the resurrection is proof that the atonement was accomplished, um, this event, the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uh, is the proof of the successful exaltation of Christ. He went and asked his Father to send the Spirit, and the Spirit came. We know he's at the Father's right hand. So what, what I want us to see here is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we find it in Acts, is first, it, it's an act of the triune God. It's not something that had to be sought or learned. It's an act. And second, it is an event in time and space in the history of the church. It's the fulfillment of prophecies, of the prophecies of John, of the Old Testament, um, and the promise of the Father. And thirdly, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was given uh, for a purpose, for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission in power beginning in Jerusalem. Um, So I want to branch out now a little bit from our text and look a little more broadly at Acts and some other scriptures and kind of put a little bit of meat on, on what the baptism of the Holy Spirit might mean. So first, uh, we'll begin with what it doesn't mean. Primarily, I want to focus on this one thing because I think it's the most relevant for us, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit cannot be a second blessing subsequent to our regeneration, our conversion. It cannot be that second blessing. Or to state it in the positive, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, but that the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is simultaneous with regeneration or conversion. So there's six verses in the Bible that speak more directly about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and five of them are either the gospel writers uh, speaking of the prophecy of John or their references to that event, five of the six. The sixth one is in 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll get to in a minute. They're really all one text just referred to again and again. So this baptism of the Holy Spirit that John prophesied about, we see here, uh, is like it says in Acts 1.8, that they will receive the power of the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So it is primarily about Pentecost and and some important echoes of Pentecost through the book of Acts. Um, and as we've noticed, there's no, there's no personal Pentecost, just like there are no personal crucifixions or ascensions. They're all one-time acts of Jesus. But we do experience these acts personally. Uh, we, we do feel the reverberations. So there's three likely objections to this understanding, um, this idea that, that it's not a second blessing. There's some objections. Two of them are biblical, and one is experiential. The first biblical objection might be, didn't the apostles believe and receive the Holy Spirit and then have another experience at Pentecost? And the answer is yes. The Gospels are are quite clear. They believed in Jesus. And according to Jesus' own words in John 3, to believe in Jesus is an act of the Holy Spirit of regeneration. But then in Acts 2, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So didn't they have a two-stage experience? Yes, they did. But we have to understand that the apostles occupied the most unusual 
stage of redemptive history. They lived in the Old Testament times under the law. They lived during the ministry of Jesus. And they lived after Pentecost. They occupied that, that bridge, that span of time where all three of those realities were true. So as, as Packer points out, he says the only reason why the first disciples had to be taken through a two-stage, two-level pattern of experience was that they became believers before Pentecost. But for folks like you and me, who became Christians nearly 2,000 years after Pentecost, the revealed program <clears throat> is that the fullest enjoyment of the Spirit's new covenant ministry should be ours from the word go. The second biblical objection um, is, what about Acts 8 and Acts 19? And we don't have time to hit these in detail. We'll, we'll hit them in detail when we get there. But briefly, Acts 8, the story of Philip, Philip the evangelist, not Philip the apostle, preaches the gospel to the Samaritans, and they believe. Then in verses 14 through 17 of Acts 8, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So isn't, isn't, is that not a case of two-stage experience of, of salvation? Again, we have to understand that what we have here is not a normative pattern given for the church through all time. It's a description, not prescription. It is, even at a cursory glance of Scripture, an exception and not the rule. And Paul didn't have that experience. So this is something we have to be very careful of in nor- uh, a narrative portions of Scripture, and especially in Acts, is not seeing everything as normative for the church that ever happened. Just because it happens doesn't mean it happens that way. We have to ask ourselves, why did this happen at this time and in this way? And this story is actually very important in the life of the early church. The pattern of the commission, again, is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Gentiles, ends of the earth. Remember, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So the question kind of is, would the Samaritans, like they currently were, would they start up their own movement of Christianity? Or would they be a part of what's going on in Jerusalem? So in this case, God delays the sending of the Holy Spirit to show that the dividing wall was being torn down. That that they were being added just like the Jews had Pentecost, so too they received the Holy Spirit in the same way. And at the hands of the apostles, because Philip, remember, was one of the seven deacons. He was not an apostle. A very similar thing happened with Cornelius, Gentile, in Acts 10, that while Peter was speaking the gospel to them, the Spirit fell on them. And then when Peter went back to Jerusalem, he had to explain himself, what are you doing with these Gentile, these dirty Gentiles? And at the end, he ended up saying, I remember that the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Who was I that I could not stand in God's way? When then they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So you see, these these unusual events of the giving of the Holy Spirit are at very important strategic stages of the Gospel of Acts. Or, of Acts. They are in line with the Great Commission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the, the earth. And one other text that's often brought up is Acts 19, and I'll be brief here. There, there's these 12 guys who only knew the baptism of John. They hear the gospel, believe the true gospel, and receive the Spirit. Um, and at first glance, it appears to be a second blessing situation. But as you look more closely, and, and I'll just leave it at this, it's pretty clear they never had the true gospel. This was their conversion experience. Now, I said there's those biblical objections, but what about the objection from experience? I mean, we do as Christians experience moves of the Holy Spirit subsequent to conversion. At least I hope so. And and first, of course, I'm sure we'll all agree that our experience has to be interpreted through the lens of Scripture and not vice versa. And I know many people have had earlier professions of faith, followed perhaps years later by an experience, perhaps more than one, of true heart change where living began to align with confession. Some of you may have had more radical Pentecostal type experiences. But what what do we make of these experiences? Well, I would say it's quite possible that that period of life between profession and, and action... Uh, maybe we were only Christian in name only. Like we, we like to say, oh, I was saved and then I made Jesus Lord 20 years later. I don't know. It's possible that maybe we're just Christian in name only. James is quite clear that true living faith and fruit go hand in hand. If there's no fruit, there's no faith. And Romans 10 is simple. It says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. But, but notice, this is something that happens at the heart level. In your guts. That's the word the Bible uses for heart. Your guts. If you have a conviction that resides in your guts, that conviction will do something to you. It will have a dramatic impact on the way you live. Now that said, the Spirit works at different paces for different people. Some are slow growers, slow to mature, and we all go through periods of setback. Um, but we should expect moves of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians. We just should not call them the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a nomenclature issue. <laughs> I've had a few of these moves, and I'm sure you have too. I just thought I'd share a few uh, of mine. If you were up here, you could share. I welcome your emails later or conversations about some of your experiences and moves of the Holy Spirit in your life. Um, I think most of mine that I could sit there and identify were in relationship to rather intense and rigorous experiences with God's Word. Um, things like my first sim- sermon that I preached in, in seminary, of course I was nervous and I spent hours slaving over it. I had the text memorized easily. Uh, John 15, about suffering, suffering for the name of Christ. 
man, that sermon had a dramatic impact on my life. The cost and value of being a Christian. Or I memorized First Peter chapter 1, and in there is verse 13, which you know is my favorite verse. And I learned about applying the idea of setting my hope fully on the hope that would come when Jesus comes back. Not in this world, but when Jesus comes back. That was huge for me. I memorized Colossians one time. Again, these are the rigorous experiences with God's Word that were spiritually gripping. To, to be gripped by the implications of union with Christ in Colossians. I did the, the huge Greek project for First John, learned about where my assurance comes from, that, that love of God necessarily means love of brother. Uh, Mark Dever's idea, he has a, biblical, a very biblical comment in, in a book. It was kind of an offhand remark, but it was radical for me. He said, when you were redeemed to Christ, you were redeemed to his people. Or something very simple, like reading Michael Horton's systematic theology about the means of grace. Like, oh, that, that was huge. And of course, reading John Piper early on in my growing years about the doctrines of grace, and then over the course of several years, learning from him what it means to delight in what God delights in. Wow, those were amazing. So those are some of the seminal moments in my own life of faith. Uh, and a lot of mine, you may have noticed, can coincide with my seminary experience. And my point is definitely not that you need to go to seminary, but that it is those more rigorous encounters with the Bible and biblical truth that I'm convinced the Spirit uses most in our lives. It's basically like Sproul likes to say, the mind is the path to the heart. But, of course, beware, because mere intellectual grasping of truth is not necessarily the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not less than that, but it's certainly much, much more. It is the change of heart, the change of desires, the fresh burning of passion to live out truths that we believe, to apply them. These are the evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, for example, truths like suffering with Christ, like I mentioned from John 15, or setting hope fully on the grace that would come when Jesus comes back. Those were things that I saw and the Spirit began to apply in my life quite quickly. It's like, okay, I I see if I'm going to suffer with Christ, I'm not going to live this life for this world or its pleasures. In fact, I'm going to probably do and say things that are going to make people not like me very much. It's going to be painful. On the other end, I, I, le- I learned and understood the doctrines of grace probably three or four years before I began to apply them to make them a comfort and a joy to me. So the Spirit gives us an intellectual knowledge, but also a heart change that goes with it. So all of that to, to illustrate and to say we desperately need the ongoing New Covenant ministry of the Spirit in our lives. We... we pure. <laughs> Uh, Presbyterians, the frozen chosen, are often accused of being spiritless. That's definitely not the truth. We need Him daily to be active in our lives. We should be praying for it, pleading for it. But let's just not call those experiences the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Uh, I think I've shown sufficiently that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a second blessing subsequent to conversion. 
Um, and honestly, sometimes these difficult topics are better studied through the written word than a half an hour sermon. So I just wanted to recommend three books to you. Um, the first is the most robust, robust Sinclair Ferguson's The Holy Spirit. Uh, a little bit more accessible, but still quite rich, is J.I. Packer's Keep in Step with the Spirit. And then a work that is really extremely accessible and also quite precise is Tom Schreiner's Spiritual Gifts. All three of those I used this week, and they were just so helpful. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you the chief problem, practical issue with second blessing theology is that it's Gnostic. It's promoting this idea of a higher knowledge. We must achieve this higher plane of knowledge. And the problem with that is that in, in Christ, then there would be haves and have-nots. There, there are those who have received the gift of Wesleyan perfectionism and those who have not. <laughs> the Bible is clear about anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is, in fact, the opposite of that. It is a uniting activity of God. It is a uniting spiritual initiation into a single covenant community. So by it, even Samaritans and Gentiles were, were brought in to the covenant community. So the other text on baptism of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul's emphasis is that every last member of the body of Christ is baptized with the Holy Spirit. That means the, the U.S. Christian and the, the Christian in China. It means the six-year-old Christian and the 80-year-old Christian. And it means the Christian who has been a Christian for 60 years and the Christian who has been a Christian for 60 nanoseconds. Uh, Sam Storms, who's an avowed charismatic, also a Calvinist, with whom I disagree on quite a few things and agree with on quite a few things, but he would agree, even as a charismatic, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a second blessing. And he provides, I think, a helpful and simple definition. He says, the baptism in the Spirit is a metaphor that describes our experience of the Spirit at conversion. We are immersed and submerged in Him and forever enjoy His presence and power. So, at conversion, all of these things happen to us, and the Bible uses all these metaphors to explain what's going on, like regeneration, the, the, the heart of stone becoming a heart of flesh, um, the new birth, a new man is born, baptism in the Spirit, we're all immersed in the Spirit, such that we receive all the benefits of the new covenant through Him. I'll close with a word from Sinclair Ferguson again and then from Romans chapter 8. Uh, Ferguson comments, he says, Thus we find two phenomena in the pattern of Acts. We are given case studies in the Spirit's activity in personal regeneration and conversion. But it is by the single empowering of the, whole, of the Spirit, first exemplified at Pentecost, that monumental advances take place in the kingdom of Christ. The inaugural outpouring of the Spirit creates ripples throughout the world as the Spirit continues to come in power. 
Pentecost is the epicenter, but the earthquake gives forth further aftershocks. Those rumbles continue through the ages. Pentecost itself is not repeated, but a theology of the Spirit which did not give rise to prayer for His coming in power would not be a thought theology of Ruach. I like that. He calls us not not to to wait for a, a, a new coming of Pentecost, but to plead in prayer for the continuing coming of the Holy Spirit. That's so important. So we do not have to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We we don't have to feel like we're a lower subclass of Christian if we haven't had a second blessing experience. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Romans 8, 9 and 10. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of is life because of righteousness. If you have Christ and if he has you, you have the Holy Spirit and he has you. Amen.